0: Parsha's chukas has 87 verses and three mitzvos. All the mitzvos that relate to the red heifer. And it's a really fascinating Parsha. The first chapter, chapter 19, deals with the red heifer, the red cow. A very unusual process that we'll read about. Uh, what to do when someone comes into contact with the dead body. They become impure. There's various restrictions on them. And the only way for them to revert out of their state of impurity is via a potion made out of a red cow processed in a very striking and unusual way. And once that concoction is complete, the ashes, mixed with water, is sprinkled upon the the individual. And over the course of seven days, they become pure and they are restored to the state of purity. So that's the first chapter. And then chapter 20 and throughout the rest of the Parsha... It deals with a lot of interesting narratives. So first of all, it fast-forwards 38 years into the future. There's a jump. You know, we've been dealing with now the Exodus and the aftermath and Sinai. And everything that happened until now has all been within a year and change after the Exodus. Chapter 20 is going to begin all the way at the end of the 40 years. And there's essentially a gap of 38 years where the Torah doesn't really tell us what happened. We only learn about where the Jewish people encamped. But we don't have any of the narrative, any of the history about what happened to the Jewish people during those 38 years. And it's going to tell us about the death of Miriam, the older sister of Moses and Aaron, and the death of Aaron as well. And the very intriguing and perplexing episode of the hitting of the rock. There's going to be the episode of the snakes. And also in the parsha we're going to read about the first wars that the Jewish people are going to encounter on the eastern side of the Jordan, of course, the Torah does not end with the conquering of the land of Canaan. They're on the doorstep, and of course, Joshua is going to lead the conquest of Canaan. But Moses is going to be at the helm during the first wars on the eastern side of the Jordan that are going to be told in this week's parsha. And the complete narrative is going to be brought in this week's parsha together with the supplementary information that we find out in the book of Deuteronomy. So let's begin the Parsha. Parsha begins. Hashem spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, This is the decree of the Torah which Hashem has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and they shall take to you a completely red cow, which is without blemish, and upon which a yoke has not come. So the mitzvah of the red heifer, the red cow is classified by the Torah as a decree. And we know that there's different categories of mitzvos. There's mitzvos that we would know and fulfill if we used our logic. These are the mitzvos that are universal mitzvos. There's some mitzvos that after they're explained to us, we understand them. And then there's a third category of mitzvos called decrees in Hebrew, a chok. Like this week's parsha is called chukas, which is from that word. And these are mitzvos that are beyond human intellect. No matter how far you try to contort your brain, you cannot possibly understand it. In fact, the Talmud tells us that there was only one person, namely Moses, who was able to understand this mitzvah in its entirety. Solomon, the wisest of all men, he tried to understand it, and even he too, the Talmud tells us in the book of Yoma, page 14, he too yielded and recognized that it is indeed Beyond him, and Rashi tells us right as we begin the parsha that the reason why it's called a chot, the reason why it's called a decree, is not because it doesn't have a meaning, but because the Satan, which is the angel that the Almighty orchestrates and appoints to try to cause us to sin, and the non-Jews, the Gentiles, they're the ones who pester the Jewish people, and they say to them. Why are you doing such a bizarre mitzvah? What meaning do you have in it? And therefore, it's explained to us, this is a decree, God has an edict, and we have to fulfill it and not question it, even though we don't understand it. So it's important to stress, and people make this mistake, it's a misconception. It doesn't say that there is no reason. It says that because we cannot understand the reason, therefore we have to accept it as a decree and not question it, but there really is something. It's just of godly intellect and not of human intellect. My grandfather pointed out a deep insight. This red heifer, this red cow is being used to undo the impurity that is foisted upon men at an encounter with death. And since the times of Adam, humanity has been condemned to die. Adam sinned, and as a result of that, all humans are condemned to die. Now, the Talmud tells us something very interesting. It says that Moses buried himself, which, of course, doesn't really make any sense because, first of all, the Torah tells us that God buried Moses. And what does it even mean to bury yourself? But the deeper insight my grandfather explained is that Moses, he conquered death, meaning that he restored himself to being in the same state that Adam was in before Adam sinned. And therefore, Moses reverted back to the state of humanity, at least personally. He reverted back to the state of humanity before death was a necessary condemnation, so to speak, a reality that is inescapable for all humanity. And therefore, because Moses was above death, he was not at all connected to the concept of death, therefore the red heifer, which is only there to undo death, made sense to him because... They're opposites. The red heifer and its understanding cannot be understood by someone who's connected to the death, but Moses, who was not connected to the death, who buried himself, he was someone that understood it. Now, it's important to stress we do get some insight from the sages and some, from the commentaries about the red heifer. And we'll try to understand it as best as we can and try to dwell on the teachings of the sages. But we also have to acknowledge that there is value to this idea. That we're accepting the word of God, even though we don't understand it, doesn't really fully make sense. So what what happens over here? We take the red ha- red heifer, the red cow. It's completely pure. It's completely red. It has no white hairs. It has no black hairs. There's no blemishes upon it. It has no yoke that's upon it. It's given to Elazar the Kohen So we know, of course, Aaron had a son Elazar, and he's going to be his successor. And he, the Cohen has to oversee the processing of the red heifer. It's taken outside the camp. It's slaughtered in the presence of Elazar the Kohen, which is like the vice Kohen Gadol, the vice high priest. They take some of its blood. They sprinkle it towards the tent of meeting. So it's done outside. It's processed outside of the temple grounds, the tabernacle grounds. And then it's sprinkled towards the tabernacle or the temple grounds. And then the cow is burned with everything that's in the cow And into that fire, there is a concoction, ingredients, cedar wood and hyssop and crimson thread, all that is thrown into the fire. The Talmud tells us that they would actually throw a lot of wood into this fire because we're trying to create ashes. The ashes of the red heifer is what's actually used for the processing of the red heifer purification process. And because a red heifer is an exceedingly rare commodity, not to find red heifers or red cows in general, you see a lot of them, but to find a cow that is entirely red or entirely brown or bronze and has no white or black hairs, that is something which is vanishingly rare and therefore we have to try to create as much of this ashes as possible to last us as long as, as is needed and therefore, they add more fuel to the fire, more wood to the fire to make more ashes. And once we're done, we, we have a, a huge pile of ashes. And then a lot of the unusual aspects of this law kick in. The Kohen who oversees it, he becomes impure. And he has to immerse his clothing and immerse himself in water. And the one who burns it also becomes impure. And the one who gathers it also becomes impure. So it's a, it's an unusual thing. It's It's a process to attain purity but it's also a process that necessitates impurity for some of the people that are overseeing and orchestrating the process of purity for others. And the one who, by the way, sprinkles it on the people who became impure, he also becomes impure. He starts off as pure, becomes impure, and the people that he's sprinkling it upon, they start off impure and they become pure again, which is a little bit of a confusing idea. It's a process of purity, but it garners impurity as well. So we have now all these ashes and they are placed in various places for for safekeeping. And whoever becomes impure by touching a corpse or coming into close contact with a corpse, they become contaminated. They can't walk into the tabernacle. They can't eat sacrifices. If they do, it's terrible. They get cut off from the Jewish people. And in order for them to become pure, they have to take this ashes. The ashes are mis- mixed with water as well. And it's sprinkled upon them after they come in contact with dead people on day three and day seven. And they become pure and they're once again allowed to enter the uh, the tabernacle and eat sacrifices, etc. And the chapter ends, This shall be for them in a total decree. And the one who sprinkles the water of sprinkling shall immerse his clothing. And the one who touches water of sprinkling shall become contaminated until an evening. Anything that the contaminated one may touch shall become contaminated, and the person who touches him shall become contaminated until evening. So let's try to understand what is the extent of what we could understand in this whole idea the red heifer. Let's try to see what the sages tell us. So Rashi tells us a very interesting idea. Rashi tells us that this is somehow connected to the episode of the golden calf. Of course, a calf is a baby cow. So we have a the sin of the Jewish people that really caused a lot of the events that followed to happen, that sin was with a golden calf, a small cow. And now we have the big cow, the red heifer, the mother cow, so to speak, not the calf, the, the mother, which is somehow a remedy for for the sins of the Jewish people. So Rashi tells us a very interesting idea. It tells us that it's a, a parable for a woman who works for the king— and she's like a like a maid servant, and she has a son who's running around the palace. And the son defecates on the floor of the king. So what does the mother do? The mother comes and she cleans up the excrement of her son. That's the parable. And similarly, over here says Rashi, we have the baby calf, the baby cow. The golden calf, which is the sin, so to speak, that's the excrement of the Jewish people, comes along the red cow, comes along the mother, and the mother cleans it up. So obviously there's a very deep idea that the red heifer and the golden calf are connected, but maybe we could say on a big picture idea that after the Jewish people received the Torah, they essentially were restored to the state of Adam pre-sin. They became like Moses. They had prophecy. They were in a very heightened state of connection With God. And our sages tell us that had they maintained that, had they perpetuated that, had they not sinned in the Sin of the Golden Calf, then they would have conquered death, they would have been on that very high level, and would have reverted to pre-sin state of Adam. But of course, after the Sin of the Golden Calf, they were downgraded to being standard issue humans, of course, humans with the tremendous experience of the Exodus and Mount Sinai, but they were no longer impervious to death. Their sin had degraded them a level. And therefore we have the remedy to that. The way to undo that is via the red heifer. And maybe on a, on a deeper level, we could say another idea that the golden calf, it wasn't just some mindless Idolatry, the way you maybe could read it. The way we understand it is the Jewish people wanted to either isolate one characteristic of God. And in fact, if we study the descriptions in Ezekiel about the prophecy of Ezekiel and the visions of Ezekiel, we find that part of the vision is a cow or a bull or a calf. And at Sinai, it's possible, at least the way the Ramban explains it, the Jewish people had a vision akin to the one of Ezekiel, and they wanted to create a monument to one aspect of the way God treats us, namely the aspect of judgment, which is personified, which is embodied by the cow, by the heifer, by the calf, and therefore they made the golden calf. It wasn't they wanted to reject God, it's just they wanted to isolate one characteristic of God to the exclusion of the whole concept of God, which of course has no parts. And because they made that mistake, they have to restore it, they have to undo it, perhaps by something that they don't understand. The idea of the red heifer being something which is beyond us, that's a feature, not a bug, because that connotes complete and total commitment to God. When someone says, I'm doing something and I don't understand it, that shows that they have yielded, they have lowered themselves, submitted themselves to God and accepted him in totality and submitted themselves to him. And therefore, it's almost like the the concept of the golden calf and the t- concept or the attitude motivating the red heifer are exact opposites. The golden calf, people say, oh, we understand God. And we understand how to embody it, how to personify it, how to create a monument to it. And I would say, okay, let's undo that by saying we don't understand it. And we're not going to give a certain testament to it. And we're going to say it's beyond us. And we're going to do the red heifer, which is something we can't understand. And there's another wrinkle, of course, that the red heifer is the mother of the calf, and that, of course, represents the idea that everything the child has is something that has its roots in the mother. Similarly, the characteristic of God is not some isolated entity, but it is part of the grand unity, the grand singularity, the grand one source, which is, of course, God. And, of course, the, every part of this has deeper insights, but we take the red heifer without blemishes. Of course, the ultimate blemish in our existence is the fact that we do die, and therefore we're symbolizing this idea that death is something which is a flaw, and therefore it's undone by this flawless cow. And the commentaries add, and I'll readily acknowledge that a lot of these things I don't understand that everything that the red cow represents is all about judgment. It's red. Red's the color of judgment. It's a cow. It's a calf, which represents judgment. It has no white hairs or black hairs, which also represent judgment. And the Rabban speaks about this the Archaim as well. The Archaim adds that no yoke was placed upon it. A yoke, of course, is about submission, which would reduce judgment. And therefore, there's no yoke upon it. So it has complete judgment. Of course, these are very advanced ideas. And we have to acknowledge, we don't really understand it, but that's the basic idea, or some of the thoughts that we find in amongst our commentaries about what the red heifer represents. Now, it is interesting that the Torah tells us in verse 3 that Elazar, he oversees the commoner who slaughters the red heifer, but it's Elazar the Kohen, not Aaron the Kohen. At this point in time, Aaron's still alive. So it's an interesting question as to why exactly Elazar, the vice high priest, not Aaron, the high priest himself, why is Elazar overseeing the Red Heifer? And the rabban gives a few answers. He says that uh, this is about training Elazar, he's going to be the future high priest, and therefore he's given the role, but of course the high priest could do it himself as well. Alternatively, Aaron was so great, he was so holy, that for him to do a service outside of the temple, outside of the tabernacle, it would be beneath his dignity. Rashi adds an interesting twist. Rashi says... We know Aaron, he participated to some extent in the sin of the golden calf and therefore with the red heifer, which is there to undo the golden calf, it's inappropriate to bring Aaron there based upon the idea that you cannot take a prosecutor and turn him into an advocate. Vis-a-vis the golden calf, Aaron is a force of prosecution and therefore he cannot come and contribute towards the remedy towards the healing because he's someone who's forever associated with the prosecution with the sin of the golden calf. So that's the basic idea. There's another important thing I want to just mention quickly. In verse 14, there's a famous teaching in Talmud. The verse says, this is the teaching regarding a man who will die in a tent. Whenever it says the word tent in Jewish literature, it harkens back to the tent of Jacob, it harkens back to the study of Torah. And the Talmud tells us that if someone wants to truly immerse himself in the tent, they have to die over it, so to speak. Says the Talmud, the Torah, the words of Torah are only fine continuity with someone who dies over it. And quotes this verse, 1914, this is the Torah, a man who dies in the tent. Meaning that the relationship we have with Torah is that we submit ourselves to God and to Torah. We render ourselves like a clean slate, eager and willing to listen and absorb God's wisdom. And that is the correct attitude to have Torah flourish within us. So that's chapter 19. Chapter 20 begins the narrative portion of the Parsha. The children of Israel, the whole assembly arrived in the wilderness of Tzin in the first month. And the people settled in Kadesh and Miriam died there and she was buried there. And there was no water for the assembly and they gathered against Moses and Aaron. So this verse from, from chapter 19 to chapter 20, it fast forwards 38 years towards the end of the 40 year duration of the Jewish people's time in the wilderness. Now, what happens in between is something we don't know. And the Rabbeinu Baha'i, he tells us that the episodes of the Torah and the prophecies of the Torah only happened in the beginning, the first year, and in the last year. And the commentaries explain that there was a period in the middle where God, so to speak, hid his face. And that probably relates to the episodes we read previously in the Book of Numbers, the sin of the spies, the sin of the scouts, and God said, okay, you're all going to die, we're going to filter and recycle you through you, so to speak, and a new generation is going to enter, that generation that was rejected by God, so to speak, it seems like the prophecies that we find find in the Torah were not conveyed in their presence once the sin of the spies of the stouts happened and the verdict was handed down that these people are going to be killed or they're going to die before the entrance into the land of Canaan commences. So we're now 38 years later, and Miriam, the sister of... Moses dies, and right away there is no water for the assembly. Everyone, of course, is freaking out because there's no water and you're in the middle of a wilderness, in the middle of a desert. So first of all, there's an interesting Rashi here. Rashi tells us that there's a juxtaposition between the episode of the red heifer and the death of Miriam. Why are they put next to each other? This teaches us, says Rashi, that just as sacrifices atone, so too the death of the righteous provides atonement for the people of Israel. A very interesting idea, that just as the red heifer, of course, provides purification and sacrifices in general provide atonement, similarly the death of the righteous provides atonement. Now, I saw an interesting comment here by the Kliyakar, one of the commentaries we find on the Torah, a very advanced idea. He tells us that there's four places in the Torah where this idea is being conveyed, that there's a juxtaposition between two episodes to teach us this kind of idea. For example, it tells us in the book of Leviticus, where the sons of Aaron died Right afterwards, read about the Yom Kippur services, and that tells us what's the juxtaposition, because when the righteous die, it's like Yom Kippur. It provides atonement. That's the first time. And then we have over here, and then we have later on the story of the death of Aaron, and that's juxtaposed to the garments of the high priest, and that tells you that the garments of the high priest provides atonement. And finally, we have the death of Aaron when it's retold in the book of Deuteronomy, that is juxtaposed to to the breaking of the tablets, to tell you that the death of the righteous is equivalent to the breaking of the tablets. So he, he he points out something very interesting. There's four places in the Torah where sages tell us what the death of the righteous means. What's the impact? And then he tells us a very deep and powerful idea. He says each one of these four episodes, each one of them corresponds to one of the four benefits that a righteous person, that a tzaddik, benefits their generation. So for example, number one, here we have the, do- the the story of the death of Miriam. And then right away, what happens? There's no water. We find out that the reason why there's no water is because the water that was provided to them for 40 years was provided to them via the merit of Miriam. So this is one element of the benefits of, That the righteous provide to their generation that they provide nourishment. And he quotes the sages in the Talmud. Talmud says that when there's a righteous person, the nourishment that is given to the whole world is done in their merits. That's the first idea. The second idea is that a righteous person, a Torah scholar, a Torah sage teaches the nation Torah. And therefore, when they die, it's like the breaking of the tablets because the connection to Torah is weakened via the death of the righteous. And therefore, when Aaron died, it's juxtaposed to the destruction of the first set of tablets. The third concept, the third benefit that the righteous give us to uh, to our to the generation to the nation, is equivalent to garments. Just as you have a garment, it provides warmth, it provides comfort. It provides shelter, similarly, when the righteous are present, and when the righteous are alive in a generation, they provide protection, they provide comfort for the nation. And we'll read a little bit later on, this is Parsha, when Aaron died, the clouds that had enveloped the nation for the duration of the 40 years, they ceased and they stopped. And that's similar to the idea of garments, that they were a protective sheath for the nation. That's another element of the benefits that are given to us by the the righteous. And finally, the death of the righteous provides atonement because a righteous person provides atonement for the generation. And therefore, just like Yom Kippur provides atonement, so too the righteous provides atonement to the generation when they pass. And that is another benefit that is given to us by the righteous. Very interesting idea that the Kliyaka here tells us that there's four times in the Torah where this concept is revealed and each one of them is revealing a different component, different aspect of the benefits that a righteous person, a tzaddik, gives us as the nation when they are alive and in their passing. So Miriam dies, and she's buried there, and right away there is no water for the assembly. This is an amazing Rashi over here. Rashi tells us that from here we learn, from this, these two verses, verse 1 and verse 2, Miriam died and there is no water, we find out that the well that had been following the nation for 40 years was done in the merit of Miriam. Now, the Talmud in the book of, of Titus tells us that eventually, and we'll read about the story a little bit later on, it's brought back the water and the well is restored by Moses and by Aaron. They're going to pray, of course. They're going to hit the rock first and that's going to cause a problem. It's going to be a sin. But ultimately, the water came back because of the two brothers of Miriam. But initially, the well that had followed the Jewish people was the byproduct of the merits of Miriam. But if you read Rashi very critically, you find out a deep insight. Here, Rashi is telling us that because when Miriam died, the water stopped, only then did everyone realize that the water had come because of Miriam, which means that for the course of 40 years, a nation of millions of people are drinking water every single day, billions and billions, maybe even trillions of glasses of water that they're drinking from this miraculous well that has been following them, and no one knew that this was all in the merit of Miriam. No one knew. And then when she dies, only then does it become clear to them that it happened because of her. And uh, the commentaries add that when she died, there wasn't the proper eulogizing, there wasn't the proper mourning, and that's why they lost it. Had they realized who she was, they could have maintained her merit. Because the nation didn't realize who she was and what she was doing for them, that's the reason why they lost it. So everyone's thirsty, and they come to to Moses and Aaron. There's no water, and please provide us water. But of course, they complain a little bit. You took us out into the wilderness. We're all going to die, us and our animals. Why would you bring us up from Egypt? To bring us to this evil evil place, there's no water, and Moses and Aaron they go into prayer and into prophecy with God, and God tells Moses, "Take the staff, which is the staff that we read about in last week's parsha, the staff of Aaron that had sprouted almonds, and gather together the assembly, you and Aaron, and speak to the rock before the eyes of the nation, and it shall give its water. You'll be able to restore." the water-spewing rock that we've had till now, if you talked it in front of the entire assembly. You shall bring forth for them water from the rock and give drink to the assembly and to their animals. So what happens? So Moses takes the staff and they gather the nation. And Moses speaks to the nation, Listen now, O rebels! Shall we bring forth water for you from this rock? Is it possible? So Moses takes his arm and strikes the rock with his staff twice. and abundant water came forth, and the assembly and their animals drank. So if you just read that, simply, you're like, this is an amazing miracle. Moses and Aaron, they convene the entire nation. They hit the rock, and water spews forth, and there's enough water for the whole nation and for their animals. But right away, we read that this was a major sin. They're punished for it. Hashem said to Moses and Aaron, Because you don't believe in me, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you will not bring this congregation to the land that I have given them. They are the waters of strife, where the children of Israel contended with Hashem, and he was sanctified through them. So a very interesting idea here, and maybe one of the most puzzling episodes in the Torah. Moses and Aaron be the whole nation, They do a tremendous miracle by hitting a rock, and the rock emits water. And right away, God says, okay, this was a sin, and this is not just any kind of sin. This is a sin that demonstrates that you don't believe in me. And by the way, if Moses and Aaron don't believe in God, who does believe in God? And as a result of that, neither of you are going to enter the land of Israel. You're going to die on the eastern bank of the Jordan, and someone else will lead the nation into the land. And, of course, all the commentaries try to figure out what exactly did Moses and Aaron do wrong. It seems like if there was a sanctification of God in the Torah, this is it. Hitting a rock and the rock emits water, enough water for millions of people, that's a great miracle. But God says, no, no, you didn't sanctify me. You left the miracle on the table, and therefore you're going to be punished. It's a very interesting and problematic episode, and all the commentaries Voluminous commentaries on this, trying to understand what happened. Because Rashi tells us that the sin is that instead of speaking to the rock, they hit the rock. And the Ramban asks a series of very long Ramban here has an essay on, on this, and he brings Rashi. Doesn't like Rashi's interpretation. he Brings the Ramban's interpretation. Doesn't like that one either. And he says, Rashi, I don't, I don't get it. If they were not supposed to hit the rock, why did God tell them? to go take the staff and speak to the rock why would you take the staff if you're only supposed to talk to the rock the staff the purpose of the staff is is to be used in this ceremony moreover we know in the book of exodus moses well was told to take the staff and hit the rock so what's wrong with hitting the rock this time moreover the ramban adds that yes it's a miracle if i talk to a rock and the rock emits water but If I hit it, it's no less of a miracle if it emits water. So what exactly is being diminished here by hitting the rock as opposed to speaking to it? And he brings the Rambam. The Rambam says something very interesting. He says that Moses called the nation, O rebels. Listen now, O rebels. Moses is labeling the nation as a nation of rebels. And he's displaying a little bit of anger. And as a result of that, the people thought that, hey, Moses is angry at us. You know who else must be angry at us? God must be angry at us. Because if Moses is displaying anger towards us, and he's nothing more but than a funnel of God, then it must be that God's angry at us too. But of course, God was not angry at them. And therefore, the sin of Moses is that he caused the nation to make a mistake to err in their interpretation and understanding of what God, the characteristics, so to speak, of, of God was at that time. And that's a very deep idea that Moses, every one of his actions, every one of his words was a lesson to the nation. He wasn't displaying his own feelings. He was displaying What God was, so to speak, feeling at that time, and if Moses is angry and God's not angry, that is a sin that shows that there is a misalignment. There's an asymmetry between Moses and God. Moses does not have faith in God, so to speak. Of course, this is only for Moses, and at his level, this is a sin for Moses. For us, it probably wouldn't be a sin. I would say quite the contrary. It'd probably be a great miracle mitzvah if we could do this. But for Moses, the second there's a there's a misalignment between him and God, that's a sin for him and for him, on his level, it's considered as if he doesn't have faith in God, he didn't sanctify God, and therefore he's not going to bring the Jewish people into the land of, of Israel. And of course, we have to acknowledge that this is the very basic understanding, and there is a tremendous amount of literature on this subject, and there's many other angles of this story, but that's the story in its basic form. Moses hits the rock instead of speaking to it, and whatever exactly the the nature of the sin is, is of course a great debate, but as a result of this, and only this, Moses and Aaron are not going to be allowed to enter the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, and Moses of course is, is going to spend a tremendous amount of time trying to undo that, trying to repent for it, so to speak, but ultimately this is going to stand and Moses is going to pass on the eastern side of the Jordan, outside of Israel. Now there is an amazing Rashi here in verse 13. The verse says, they are the waters of strife. These waters, the waters of the rock are the waters of strife. So Rashi tells us invoking Pharaoh in Exodus when Pharaoh, when he was worried about the Jewish people having a savior, his forecasters, his necromancers, his stargazers, his astrologers told him, we see that the Savior of the Jewish people is going to be born, and he is going to be stricken with water. Therefore, throw all the Jewish babies into the water. Rashi tells us, when the verse here tells us that they are the waters of strife, it's referencing that same vision that the stargazers of Pharaoh had, Indeed, Pharaoh was correct that the lead of the Jewish people, Save the Jewish people, is going to be stricken by water, but it's not going to be because of the waters that are going to kill them, throwing the babies into the, into the water. But this episode of the waters, this was Moses' sin, and this was the strife, so to speak, the war, the strife, the waters of strife that they saw. They, of course, misinterpreted it, but this is a reference to that, a very interesting idea. And the episode ends by telling us that God was sanctified through them. And again, Rashi tells us, and this is an idea that we saw earlier, that when God punishes the righteous, that is a sanctification of God because everyone who is not righteous says, oh my goodness, if God is so serious with the righteous and he punishes them for what we consider the most minor of sins, what does that portend to us? And the lesson that the nation takes when they see God punishing the righteous is a lesson that provides sanctification for God because they all take the lesson home, and therefore the punishment of the righteous is indeed something which God is sanctified through. And I would just add, and this is of course dicey territory, but the people who ask the question, where was God in the Holocaust, of course it's a very difficult question to grapple with. But the question of why the righteous died in the Holocaust is a different angle, and here we see a little bit of a Jewish perspective of that, that when the righteous die or the righteous are punished, and comparatively less righteous people are not punished or not punished by the same severity, here's a little bit of a wrinkle of understanding that this provides more of a lesson, more of a sanctification than when the wicked or the less righteous are punished. And then, verse 14, we begin reading about the encounters that the Jewish people had with the various nations that are blockading their entrance to the land. Of course, the eastern border of the land of Israel is the Jordan River, and you have the west bank of the river, which is in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel proper, and then you have the eastern bank, which at that time was occupied by all kinds of nations. And the Jewish people want to navigate and negotiate passage to Canaan, and they have to get through some of those nations. So they begin, and this is the first encounter with a foreign adversary in the Parsha, they begin with Edom, with the nation of Edom. So Moses sent emissaries from Kadesh to the king of Edom, and he reaches out to the nation of Edom. Edom, of course, is from the family of Esau of Esau. And they reach out. and They said they they send the message as follows. So said your brother Israel. So right away you were invoking the brotherhood, because of course the nation, their descendants of Jacob, the brother of Esav. You know all the hardships that have befallen us, and he gives us the whole history. Our forefathers descended to Egypt, and they dwelt in Egypt for many years. And the Egyptians did evil to us and our forefathers. We cried out to Hashem. He heard our voice. He sent an emissary to us out of the land of Egypt, and now we're in Kadesh, the city at the edge of your border. Let us pass through your land. We shall not pass through field or vineyard. We shall not drink well water. On the king's road, we shall travel. we were not going to veer right or left until we pass through your border. So they make a request for passage through the land of Edom. And Edom responds, Edom said to him, You shall not pass through me, lest I come against you with the sword. And the people persist, the nation of Israel persists, and they say to them, okay, Maybe we have a different arrangement. We should go through on the highway. If we drink water, me or my flock will pay the price. We're not going to happen to you. We're just going to, we're just going to walk through on foot. And again, the response is unambiguous. You shall not pass through. And then Edom went out against them with a massive throng and a strong hand and they refused passage and the nation of Israel turned away from them. So this is the first encounter with with an enemy, the enemy of Adom. So it's a very interesting Rashi here explaining the subtext of this dialogue, of this negotiation. The people of Israel begin, we are your brothers. What is the reason why the brotherhood is being invoked here? Rashi tells us, according from the Midrash, that we're brothers. And after all, our common ancestor, Abraham, was promised that you should surely know that your children will be foreigners in a foreign land. There was a curse that was upon our collective family. Both of us, the nation of Israel, the nation of the Jewish people, the children of Israel, and the children of Edom, both of them had this debt to pay from the time of Abraham. And who paid that debt? We paid that debt. And therefore, because we paid that debt, therefore we earned the right to the land of Israel. We're the ones who paid the debt. And therefore, you should not have any problems, any qualms with our entrance into the land of Canaan, because after all, the people who pay the debt, they're the ones who should reap the rewards. We pay the debt, we suffered at the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and therefore we have earned our claim to the land of Israel, and therefore let us go through. And the response of Edom is... Interesting because Rashi again explains that the Jewish people are invoking their prayer and that of course is the characteristics of Jacob. The voice is the voice of Jacob and the response of Edom is that the sword is the power of Esau. Why? You approach as Jacob, you approach with prayer, I'm going to approach as Esau, as Esau, I'm going to approach you with the sword. And ultimately, they don't let them pass. They veered away. And the Rabban here tells us that the reason why they did not respond militarily to the Edomites, to Esav, is based upon divine mandate. We read this, again, like we mentioned earlier, the narrative of the conquest of the eastern bank of the Jordan is retold in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. And we find out some more information that completes the narrative for us. And there we find out that God told Moses to not start up with the Edomites. They're the ones who rightfully have the land of Seir, and therefore the reason why they veered away from them is not because they were scared of a fight, but it was based upon a divine instruction that they're not allowed to wage war with Edom. And then they journey out of the vicinity of Edom, and they arrive at Mount hor, which is har, hahar in, in Hebrew. And the word har means mountain, and har, har, hahar means mountain upon mountain. So Rashi tells us this looks like a, like a, like a fruit. If you would have an apple on top of an apple, a mountain on top of a mountain, you would have har, hahar, Mount Har, which is the mountain upon which Aaron is going to be buried. And this is on the border of the land of Edom. And Moses is instructed by God, Aaron's going to die. He's not going to enter the land because of the waters of strife. Again, exclusively because of that sin. Take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, bring them on top of the mountain. Take off Aaron's special garments that are reserved for the high priest. And dress his son, Eliezer, who is dressed with the four garments of a regular priest. And upgrade him to be the replacement to be the successor of his father as the high priest, and Aaron is going to die. So Moses did as the Shem commanded. They ascended Mount Hor before the eyes of the entire assembly. Moses stripped Aaron's garments from him and dressed Elazar, his son, in them. The commentaries quote the Midrash and the Talmud that tells us this was miraculous that uh, you couldn't really undo this without taking off all the garments but the four garments that are universal amongst the Kohanim remained on Aaron in a miraculous fashion and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain and Moses and Elazar descended from the mountain when the entire assembly saw that Aaron had perished they wept for Aaron for 30 days the entire house of Israel. This is a very interesting Rashi here that tells us the process of Aaron's passing it tells us that they entered into a cave and they saw in the cave a bed spread out and a candle lit and Aaron was told by Moses, go on top of the bed and extend your hands and open your mouth, close your eyes and that's how he died. And the way it's described in the Talmud, he died with the the death called kiss, Almost as if the mouth which is the conduit through which the soul came through into us, that's just extracted seamlessly from the mouth via, so to speak, a kiss, which is, of course, on a deeper level telling us that Aaron's soul was so pure, it did not need to navigate any sort of resistance. It was put in seamlessly. It was taken out as equally seem- seamlessly to indicate that he was entirely righteous. And the people who were entirely righteous. They die with this level of death and Rashi tells us the second Moses saw this he too craved that kind of death and just as a sidebar here in Judaism we say that the way someone dies the nature of the death of a person is indicative is reflective on the kind of life that they lived and the Talmud tells the book of Brachos, page 8 that there's 903 different types of death because there's three different levels that a person can reach at, and the highest level, the most righteous death, is the death of, of the kiss, which is a death in which the soul is pulled out without any resistance. There's no blemishes to that soul, and therefore it can be taken out very easily and very seamlessly, says the Talmud, like pulling out a hair out of a glass of milk. When the nation sees that Aaron had died, they're in total shock and total disbelief. And Rashi tells us the dialogue that happened. Where's Aaron? They ask Moses. And Moses says, well, he died. How's it possible? Last week's show, we read how Aaron had stymied, had stifled the angel of death. He stopped the plague. How is it possible the angel of death had control over him? And right away, Moses requested mercy and the angels showed a vision to the nation of Aaron placed upon a bier, placed upon a bed, and they believed him. They couldn't believe him that Aaron would die. Aaron, in their their minds, was impervious to death, but once they saw that, they believed him. And as a result of the passing of Aaron, the nation, the whole nation cries for 30 days. Rashi tells us, why is it the whole nation? Because Aaron was someone who relentlessly pursued peace— And he would try to infuse peace and love between litigants, between a husband and wife. And consequently, everyone felt a kinship, a connection to Aaron. And therefore, everyone cried for 30 days because everyone recognized the tremendous loss that they had with the passing of Aaron. And right away, we read chapter 21 that Amalek, masquerading as a regular Canaanite nation, they discover the whereabouts of the people of Israel and they attack and they took a captive from the nation of Israel. And here's the second juxtaposition of a death of, of a righteous one, the death of Aaron to the attack of the Canaanites. And Rashi tells us that when Aaron died, the clouds of glory that had camouflaged the nation disappeared and therefore the nation is suddenly exposed to the enemy and the enemy attacks, which means that the nation is, is traveling within this invisible bubble, this enveloping cloud, and therefore they could go wherever they want undetected. But now once Aaron dies, the cloud goes away and therefore their whereabouts are known to the enemy. Now Amalek is acting quite sinisterly because they are attacking as Canaanites. You read the verse, the verse says the Canaanite king of Arad, they heard about the Jewish people and they attack. But we find out from Rashi, these are not regular Canaanites. These are specifically the southern dwelling Canaanites, which is Amalek. And Rashi tells us why did they masquerade as Canaanites. Because they spoke line of Canaan and they camouflaged themselves because they wanted the Jewish people to pray for salvation from the Canaanites and therefore to say an incorrect prayer, because it's not the Canaanites, it's really the Am- Am- Amalekites, and therefore the prayer would be inefficacious, and therefore they would be able to win. Very deep insight. If you're praying to to survive the encounter with the enemy, and you say the wrong name of the enemy, you say Canaanites instead of Amalekites, your prayer might not be effective. And therefore we see indeed there was a captive. And of course, there's, there's a, there's a variety of lessons over here, but one of them is with respect to prayer. Prayer has to be precise. Almost like if you put in a website address and you spell it incorrectly, it doesn't matter how, how many times you hit the enter button, it's not going to work. Similarly, prayer, you're, you're asking God for something specific. And if you say the wrong thing, even though, of course, God knows what you really want, but prayer is such a powerful tool and it has to be marshaled correctly. And therefore, if you say it inaccurately, it's not going to work. There's a story with Robert T. one of the great sages of the late 18th and early 19th century. There was a prayer that he was saying, and someone told him, Pray for this person, for this and this name. And he's like, it's not, this is the wrong name, because I feel resistance to the prayer. And indeed, it turned out that it was the wrong name, and that's why the prayer was not immediately efficacious. So they have an encounter with Amalek. And, indeed, Amalek is successful in taking a captive. Rashi tells us this is only one maidservant. And this, I think, reveals an insight that, for us, any degree of casualties of war is too much to bear. And we see this amongst other nations, you know, when there is an exchange, a prisoner exchange. There's one Israeli soldier and there's, you know, 5,000 terrorists. And the asymmetry is reflected over here because the Jewish nation, no loss is tolerable. And here we see a focus that we lost and who who would we lose? We lost one person and who was that? It was, it was a maidservant. You would think that that would not even register. But here we see an inside, the Jewish people, when we have war, any degree of casualty is something that we cannot bear. And the people pray to God, and they make a vow, if you deliver these people into my hand, I will consecrate their cities, meaning I will dedicate the spoils of war to God. God heard their voice, and he delivered the Canaanites, and in, indeed they kept their promise, they consecrated them and their cities, and they named the place that they conquered, they named it Harma. After that war, the war, war with Hamalek, they retreated a little bit, and they went back in the direction where they came from, to circle around the land of Edom, but the people got really frustrated with this detour, and they started complaining, why do you bring us out to the land of Egypt? We're going to die in the wilderness. There's no food. There's no water. We're disgusted with the manna, with this insubstantial food, and God sent the fiery serpents, the venomous serpents, to go kill the people because they were complaining, and a large multitude of Israel died. They started retreating. They started going in a circuitous route, and the people are so frustrated, we're finally on the doorstep of Canaan, and now we're going back around. They start complaining, and God responds with a fitting punishment by sending after them the venomous snakes. And Rashi tells us that the snake, the, the primordial snake of Genesis, spoke evil, and therefore these people speak evil, and therefore it's appropriate for them to be punished with snakes. And in addition, Rashi tells us the second reason why God sends snakes is because A snake, everything tastes like dust. And here the Jewish people, they show ingratitude because they have the manna, which tastes like anything that you want it to taste like. and Therefore, it's appropriate. When you complain about the manna, it's appropriate that you're attacked with snakes because the manna is the exact opposite of any snake food. The manna tastes like anything and the snake food tastes all the same. So the serpents are attacking the Jewish people. They complain to Moses, Moses prays to God, and God says to them, Okay, I'll give you a solution, make a pole, upon the pole put a fiery serpent, and anyone who is bitten by the serpent will look at it and live. So Moses made, makes a serpent of copper, place upon a pole, and indeed, when a serpent bit any person, they would stare at the copper serpent, and they would live. So this is, of course, a miracle. And Rashi quotes the teaching from the Talmud in the book of Rosh Hashanah, What does it mean to look at this staff, this fiery serpent staff? What does it mean? Of course, it's not to tell you that the snake kills, nor does the snake give life. But when you look up to heaven and you pray, then God will save you. And the Ramban adds that this is to remind us that not only does God give life, but God also kills. Yes, the remedy of the snake bite comes from God, but certainly the snake bite itself also comes from God. And then we read about another encounter, this time with the Amorites, and something really miraculous happens. And Rashi fills us in the details that they were waiting in ambush in caves between two mountains, and their plan was when the people passed beneath them, beneath in the valley between these two mountains, they're going to pummel them with all kinds of weaponry, and they're going to kill them in, uh, in in this way. And God made a miracle that the two mountains temporarily clasped together, crushing them to death. we got a very vivid description here in Rashi that their blood and their guts and their limbs were all crushed by these two mountains that clasped together, and it all fell down into, into the valley. And as a result of that, we read this song of the book of the Wars of Hashem, which is the song based upon the miracle that happened. Rashi tells us that the, the well that was now following them from the rock gathered up all the blood and all the limbs of, of the dead Amorites that had laid ambush for the people. And when the people saw that, they started singing. And this is one of the songs of the Torah, a song of uh, tremendous thanks to God for this wonderful miracle. Now, there's an interesting question Rashi tells us here in, in the end of his commentary on this, on this song. Why does the song not mention neither God nor Moses? And he tells us a very interesting idea because Moses, after all, he was somewhat culpable with the sin of hitting the rock, and therefore this well, this spring, is somehow associated negatively with Moses, and therefore it's inappropriate for that to have his name labeled on this song, and consequently it's inappropriate to. To have God as well, because God said, so to speak, if you don't include Moses, don't include me. And we also find out from Rashi a very interesting idea that the well of Miriam eventually embedded itself in the Sea of the Galilee. And my grandfather used to tell the story that when Rabchaim Vital was a student of the Arizal, he was not understanding the Torah conveyed to him by the Arizal. He took him into a, a boat, a, into a canoe in the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, and he gave him to drink from a specific spot in the Sea of Galilee. And that was from the waters of the well of Miriam. And once he drank that, the wellsprings of wisdom were open for him. My grandfather also added that when he went to Tiberias, he went to Tveria. He really wanted a drink from that water, but no one knew exactly where it was. And my father told me that he remembers going to Tiberias with his father, with my grandfather, and him asking around trying to find where that water was. Really Interesting. So that was a third encounter with the Amorite contingency that was trying to kill the Jewish people in ambush. And then we read about the fourth encounter, this time with Sichon, the king of the Amorites. Again, there is a request for passage. And again, there is a negative response. And Sichon, instead of yielding, he engages in war. And again, Israel smote him with the edge of the sword to possession of his land his whole land, and they settled it. This was a very powerful nation. This was a nation that stood at the vanguard of the land of Canaan. It was a mighty nation. It was a nation that was inconquerable, and it was a miraculous defeat of this mighty enemy. Despite the fact that the Jewish people reached out with peace overtures, they were rejected, and indeed the defeat was very miraculous. And finally, we read about the fifth encounter with Og, the king of Bashan, again they also battle with the Jewish people, and Moses is told by God, "Don't fear them; I'm going to deliver them into your hands, like I delivered the uh, Sihon, the king of the Amorites." And indeed, they smote him, his sons, and all his people until there was no survivor left among them, and they took possession of his land. So these twin powers that were on the edges of the land of Canaan—Og, the king of Bashan, and Sichon, the king of, of the Amorites. They were both conquered and their lands were acquired by the people of Israel. And indeed, some of the people, we'll read about this a little bit later on in the book of Numbers, some of the tribes decided to permanently dwell on the eastern side of the Jordan in the lands conquered from the Amorites and from the Bashanites. And the next parsha is going to deal with another kingdom, the kingdom of Moab, they see what the Jewish people did, to the kingdoms of Bashan and of the Amorites, and they get terrified, and they resort to a very unconventional weapon to try to stymie and stifle the Jewish people, and that is trying to hire, trying to commission Bilam, the Gentile prophet, to curse them. Thus concludes the Parsha, the fifth and final encounter of the Parsha with the enemies. They destroy the King of Bashan, Ogen King of Bashan is destroyed. There's a total victory and the children of Israel journey encamped on the plains of Moab on the banks of the Jordan opposite Jericho. They are ready to enter and uh, the rest of the Torah essentially is going to be the Jewish people at this location in the plains of Moab on the banks of the Jordan River. Thank you for listening. This has been Rabbi Akiva Wolbe in the Parsha Podcast. I look forward to hearing from you, Rabbi Wolby at and we'll speak, please God, next week.